G'day humans, happy new year. I hope you're having a pleasant holiday. I hope you are having a holiday. I'm not this week, I'm broadcasting, but next week I get to go to New Zealand and visit my family, which will be lovely. Uh, We've uh, selected three of the best exchanges that I've had over the past 12 months with three of our favourite guests, and we've hand-plucked them gently to drop them into your ear holes. Uh, This is the second of three best-of episodes over the holiday uh, period. Andrew Denton, Tim Flannery, and Anna-Marie Cox. Andrew Denton is up first, uh, one of the most celebrated and brilliant Australian comedians and writers. He'd been a fixture of Australian television and radio uh, for decades and has more recently become interested in the Right to Die movement, uh, the euthanasia movement in Australia. He's an absolute joy, a towering intellect and wildly funny. Please enjoy this best of episode kicking off with Andrew Denton. What happened to your dad? Uh, my dad was, uh, had been probably for the last seven or eight years of his life, or longer probably, the last decade, very unwell. He'd had a heart attack, he'd had heart surgery, he had lots of stuff going on. And eventually his body really packed in and um, he went into our local hospital, which is fine. They did all the right things, um, <clears throat> but it was congestive heart failure. And uh, as another doctor described it to me, to me many years later, it's a bit like being waterboarded. It's a pretty nasty way to go. And he was given pump full of all the drugs, but... My sisters and I, we we didn't talk about it for many years, but we've talked about it since. And all I can see as I speak now is him lying there and just moaning and spasms of pain and twitching. And um, it was it was um, very shocking to see. And you walk out of that, you don't think, well, that was wrong. You think, well, that's how it goes. And that's the hospital and they know what they're doing. And I'm sure they did the best they could. Um, you're, you're so... Because dying, and particularly when it's uh, your parent, and, and in my case it was the first death I've been up close to, because it's such a profoundly shocking thing, and um, you, you find it very hard to process, and you're, you're utterly disempowered in that situation. So, um, yeah, I... Watching Dad die was uh, will always be with me and my sisters, and um, it was it was not good, and it could have been better. I now know. How? Well, uh, funnily enough, um, <clears throat> I was being interviewed by sixty Minutes some years ago, Liz Hayes, and she, and she asked about my dad, and 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 she said, "What did he think about euthanasia?" I said, "I don't." recall us talking about it at length, but I, I would imagine her supportive. She said, he was. I interviewed him on the Today Show back in 1986, and here's a tape of it. Oh, wow. Um, was it a Betamax or a DVD, a YouTube clip? No, it was actually, it was it was pigeons performing <laughs> it. <laughs> um, and a tiny pigeon band. That's right. No, it was, it was a cave painting um, <laughs> uh, with a tick, tick, tick underneath it. Um, and, uh, yeah, Dad... Um, Dad, who was a very uh, well-educated man who knew his own mind, uh, put it really well. He's very articulate. He said, you know, what does euthanasia mean? It, uh, it, it's two Greek words. And 
which together mean good death, and it means not dying in a welter of pain. And, you know, I wish that could have been extended for my father. I think if voluntary assisted dying, which is for those that don't know what it is, it's a law which enables people uh, who are terminally ill, uh, if they meet certain criteria, which is having six months or less to live, um, or 12 months if, it, if it's a neurodegenerative disease, like motor neuron disease, um, you can legally be prescribed a, a life-ending draft, which you can choose to drink. And if you do uh, drink that, then you will die peacefully and quickly at a time of your choosing with the people you want around you, which is different to how my father died, which was in pain, drugged up in a hospital with us watching. Mm. Have you read Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal? Yeah. Uh, where, which is a he's a physician and writer mm. and uh, in in the states, and it's a beautiful meditation yes. on how screwy our Western relationship to death is. It's not specifically about euthanasia, but about sure. the entire medicalization of the process around dying, yes. in and the the detachment that we have from the sort of gritty, organic, familial reality of the way that death has traditionally been experienced. Is do you incorporate that into your thinking about? euthanasia, this broader question of what we're doing when we're dying? Yes, in as much as, I mean, not in that spiritual sense, although it does remind me what somebody said to me a couple of years back, which is in Victorian times, um, they talked about death all the time and never about sex, and now it's the other way around. (laughs) In as much as, and I I know this to be true from so many people who I have uh, got to know who've gone through this process, uh, that uh, look, it's one of the things the Catholic Church, which attempts to own dying, who are the, who are the significant opponents of assisted dying, they paint this picture that the right way to die is a natural death surrounded by a Christian love and and what they refer to as supernatural warmth, which is a hell of an expression, and uh, or maybe hell isn't the right word, <laughs> um, and that of and that is, uh, I remember Geraldine Duke, um, who's fairly religious and she used to I went on campus and she talked to me about you know do you think there's there are certain rights around dying I said absolutely there are and some of them you know whatever gets you through the night as John Lennon used to say mm. I think those that Christian view of dying that's that it's a time of spiritual growth is very important to those people what I've seen with voluntary assisted dying is that there's no less of that uh, that those last moments those farewells the ability to be truly in that moment with the person you love uh, is very, very powerful. And and people go to it their own way. Um, one man in Victoria who uh, chose voluntary assisted dying did something which perhaps you or I would find counterintuitive. He didn't want his family there when he died. And he said... I don't want their love holding me back. Mm. It's such a hard thing to do. It's so hard to do. And and in this podcast, um, there's one episode where I interview three people who each have the medication. And one of them, uh, his name is Peter Jones. And he was a a musician, a professional musician, very dry sense of humour. And when I was talking to him, I was keenly aware he'd set the date and it was about 500 hours hence from when we were going to talk. It was only a couple of weeks. 
And I'm glad you did the maths there because I was thinking 500 divided by 24. I wasn't <laughs> going to listen to the next 30 seconds. No. Things you were going to say. Um, and in the course of our conversation, I only realised afterwards that he there was something that he really needed to talk about, and he asked me a question, and this is burnt into my soul. Um, he said he had one daughter who was the love of his life, and he said, I. I read about a sister dying and how it's described as this kind of kumbaya moment and it's all very lovely. And he said, but I, I'm not so sure. I think, it's, I think it's something darker than that. And, how, and he basically said, how am I going to say goodbye to my daughter? Because I love her more than anything and she's going to lose me, I'm going to lose her. And we had to do it by Zoom and I just wanted to reach through the screen and hug him because I, I got the pain. I got the pain and... Uh, um, you know, it was many years after Dad died that this thought suddenly came into my head. I thought, gee, that was hard for us. Well, what was it like for him to mm. know, as we all must, to know that you are going to say goodbye to everything you know and everything you love? And I remember walking out of uh, the hospital when Dad died. It was a perfect Blue Mountains autumn day, the kind of day he and I lived for. I remember distinctly thinking... The words, <laughs> I spoke them to myself. I, I looked at this blue sky and I thought, you don't get this anymore. You don't get the sky. You don't get the sun. You don't get the grass. You don't get to play anymore. And um, so to go back to this, uh, to Peter Jones, um, I think everybody reaches the moment, particularly when you know when the moment is going to be, in their own way. And for some it's deeply spiritual and for others, it's, I don't want the family there because I don't want their love holding me back. It's hard. So part of the pushback to voluntary, and so the, just to clarify for people, the first season of your podcast, Better Off Dead, was um, about five years ago, and you mm-hmm. were looking at some of the jurisdictions where these laws have been introduced, like the Netherlands and Belgium and so on. And then the new season, which is uh, which is just being released now, is about Victoria's experience, which is a state in Australia that has, has legalised voluntary-assisted dying and I mean part of the criticism of this is the slippery slope sort Mm. of argument about what about these edge cases you just said when the person knows that it's their time Mm -hmm. uh my dad's starting to get dementia uh I his sister is a doctor you know I'd be lying if I didn't sometimes think about his mother who ended up in a almost a vegetative state, racked by uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and schizophrenia. Hmm. And I suppose our conversations at the time were long before he knew that he was going to end up with dementia. He was saying, that's not something that I want to yeah. end up living like. That's not a life that I think is worth living anymore. Now... He's not going to be in a position to make that decision at no. some point. By the time he gets to that state, he's no longer he would no longer be eligible under any any realistic regime. And yep. so the critics of these laws say, well, if not, why not? And if so, then you're opening the gate to people who aren't really informed about what they're doing mm. to take their own lives, and then you're normalising suicide. Yeah. Well, God, there's many things there. First of all, I'd, I just want to address the I, this expression, slippery slope. It is used in the same way as the expression "fake news" is used. It's it's like a flamethrower. Uh, it's like it's, it, it's and it's essentially code for 
we don't want this to happen anywhere ever. You know, somebody who I've met in my travels in this, who I really liked is, is the Jesuit priest Frank Brennan, who's a very eminent thinker in this country. And, and we were on a panel together and he sent me some of his writing afterwards about Slippery Slope and, and this idea that, you know, once you start the law here, then it will inevitably expand. Um, by the way, the last 20 years uh, has shown very little of that, but I'll, I'll come to that. And I remember thinking, you know, Frank has been such an admirable advocate for refugees. I remember thinking, I wonder how Frank would react if, if somebody said to him, well, Frank, it, you know, if you let in Vietnamese, then one day you're going to have to let in Fijians. And I don't know if we want Fijians. He would have gone, but that the principle of this is we help people. Um, the principle of assisted dying is you're trying to help people who medical science can't help. So to go back to the question of Alzheimer's, which is the number one and dementia, the number one thing that's raised with me, and as you rightly pointed out, no law in Australia and, and few laws around the world um, will encompass Alzheimer's. And there is a really core reason for that, which is at the very centre of these laws is you have to prove that this is your wish and that you are mentally competent, not just when you first ask for it, but all the way through the assessment process, which is quite uh, testing, as it should be. Um, there is another reason, which is if somebody, and you know, there's a lot of debate about this overseas, well, if somebody with dementia puts it in an advanced care directive, that when I reach X point, then I can be uh, euthanized. Um, that mechanism may well work, but you're still asking somebody to act on that who can't look that person in the eye, regardless of that advanced care directive, and know 100% that that's what they want. Mm. And I think that that's very difficult for that doctor who's in that position. So when I was in the Netherlands, one of the more fascinating conversations I had, they have a thing called... They've got the longest conversation about... Uh, euthanasia and end of life of any country in the world and they've developed uh, a place called the life-ending clinic which deals with what you call fringe cases what they call specialized cases and the man that ran it is called Stephen Pleiter and um, we were talking about Alzheimer's cases and concurrent to this I interviewed a family whose um, mum had Alzheimer's and had gone through the assessment process and been legally had her life ended in in the Netherlands and they, the daughter described how the mum had been put through the hoops, like all the way through, do you know what this is you're asking for? Do you know that this is what you want? And she said, even, even right to the night before, I was unsure. I was unsure. How does my mum really know? And then I overheard the nurse say to her on the night before, you have a choice. You can drink a draft or you can be um, injected. And she said to the mother, what would, what would you prefer? And the mother said, I'll drink. I always know what it is I want to do. And the daughter heard this and said, yeah, my mother does know. So cut back to the, the man who runs the life-ending clinic. And he talked about how um, with dementia, you've got to make a choice. And the expression he used was, you have to choose to leave the ball before midnight. So mm. in other words you still have to be able to show that this is your competent wish. So in effect, you have to make a choice to end your life before the dementia takes such hold that you can no longer express your wish, um, which means you won't live the full extent of your natural life. Or if you don't choose to leave the ball before midnight, then you'll go into that 
grey space, which I've witnessed too, and um, it's it's a terrible thing. People that talk about the slippery slope often raise this as, you know, this is where we're going to go. I don't know what the answer to it is, but what I do know is that it is in our society and in most societies one of the most pressing <coughs> medical issues. The prevalence of Alzheimer, Alzheimer's and dementia, I think it's it's one of I think it's the second biggest killer of over 80s in Australia. It is a huge problem, and many many families are grappling with it. And if, as a society, through the parliamentary process, which the history of the assisted dying debate in Australia shows us, is extreme and difficult, but if, as a society, we devise and approve, and our parliaments agree to a system whereby people with Alzheimer's can be assisted to die, then that is what our society wants. That is not a slippery slope. That is Western parliamentary democracy, representative democracy, working as it should. When we were just launching HuffPost Live, the, net, the, the streaming television network that I worked on in New York, uh, one of my original pitches was to do a recurring segment called Slippery Slope Schmippery Schmope, where we... <laughs> I see what you're doing. You, what was that? An extraordinary talent? What was your visa saying? Extraordinary talent, Andrew. Mm, interesting. Extraordinary mm, talent. Did, did you juggle? I... <laughs> <laughs> it's all I had left, Mr. Denton, all I had left. Uh, but, yes, unfortunately that, that particular gem didn't get up, but I thought that there would be an endless reservoir of weekly uh, de- debunkings of slippery slope claims that people are making about various things. Well, I, <laughs> still... Say, look, it never, you never got the schmippery schmope. I mean, I've heard so many in the assisted dying space, and, and, and it invariably gets to, and it probably will again in the debates about to happen. Somebody invariably says... But look at Nazi Germany. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the outstanding slippery slope-ism I've heard was actually in the same-sex marriage debate. You'll remember this, that people were going to end up marrying bridges and yes, buildings. and ducks. And ducks. Yeah, Bill yeah. O'Reilly said, what's next? You're going to marry a duck? Oh, that's an interesting thought. I was actually, yeah. No, I even interviewed, who was it? Jeremy Irons right. on HuffPost Live. Yes. And I asked him about that because the gay marriage uh, was, just a, was imminent in the UK. Yes. And he said... Could a father not marry his son? And I said, well, why, why would he? He said, you get around death duties, you see. So if you inherit uh, your estate, then you, uh, you, could marry your, you could marry your son and get around the death duties because then you're not inheriting it, you're giving it to your spouse, you see. Was he proposing this or was he... <laughs> Oh, it's funny. So Colbert subsequently picked up my interview with Jeremy Irons and yes. played it and uh, and showed a shot of Jeremy Irons with his son, right. who I'll just pretend his name is William, I don't remember, but yes. you know, Colbert then saying, you've just made William a very happy man. Oh, as if Jeremy is, and we've gone into gonna... This conversation must be cancelled right this now. This will be cancelled, yes. or we will. Um, so, I mean, let's just play then in the edge in the in the in the fringe there for a moment. What did you call it? Special. Uh, this was the uh, conditions, uh, like the the cases that are unusual. Right. Or yeah, rare. that's right. Um, in October, I'm moderating a series of events with Peter Singer, who is doing a Sydney and a Melbourne and a Brisbane, and I'll be in conversation with him. And he is well known for pushing the envelope on these yeah. kinds of questions and saying, "Look, there's no." If if abortion is okay, there's no real reason why a severely handicapped two-month-old child who has no prospect for a flourishing mm. life whatsoever and is going to be living in pain for you know for a short abbreviated life. There are some conditions where you know there's no prospect of them living more than ten years, fifteen years, uh, in agony. That that it should be legal to kill that 
that child. Do you play in those waters? No, not so much. Uh, I'm certainly aware of those waters. In fact, I watched Peter Singer in a debate with um, Archbishop Anthony Fisher at Sydney Town Hall some years ago, and and in fact a very um, emotional uh, representative of the disability communities with a particular form of spina bifida stood up and said, I'm the sort of person you'd like to see dead, which I don't think is what Peter's saying. But no, I play in very centrist waters, and, <laughs> and I do that for a very specific reason. On my side of the argument, there are many people well to the left of me who think that assisted dying laws should be uh, open to more people. Uh, And there are powerful arguments for that, I might add. But um, when I did that first podcast series, I spent almost a year traveling around talking to... I got the opportunity to speak to everyone, including uh, fierce opponents. And what I uh, realized as I did my research is that the reason these laws hadn't passed in Australia is that... um, the political argument was not being well run and that often people were trying to uh, argue for something which wasn't ever going to get through an Australian parliament. Right. Each, you know, it's a, often opponents of these laws will point to, well, look what's happening in Canada and look what's happening in Belgium. It's, it's like, no, that's not how it works. You know, Australia and America both have guns, but we have completely different approaches to how we do it. Each country makes its laws according to its culture and its traditions and its history. And uh, what I've discovered, because I've spent a lot of time, and it's often been fascinating talking with politicians over the last five years, from all parties, from all points of view on this, is that our parliaments in this issue are conservative, and more than that, almost without exception, politicians, because these are conscience votes so that you get to actually see their brains and hearts at work, when they stand up and talk about it, almost without exception, they'll say this is the most significant and the most difficult thing I will ever be asked to address in my career. Um, So I think my focus and the group I've set up, which is Go Gentle Australia, to advocate for this law reform is to make sure there is law reform. And, uh, you know, I've had some pretty willing arguments with some of the people on my side that would like us to be pushing for something wider or bigger or greater. And I say, look, I'm arguing for 80% of something rather than 100% of nothing. And I have seen this borne out in Victoria, which the law is conservative, and the conservative nature of the law has created some problems. But here's what I've seen. What I, what was invisible five years earlier, except for a, very, a couple of very principled people, I've seen doctors, senior doctors, I've seen senior people in palliative care stepping forward and talking about things that were verboten to talk about three or four years ago, talking about if we're saying that what we provide is patient-centred care and then we're turning around and saying to patients, sure, you can, if you're dying, you can refuse all treatment and you can you know, spend two weeks uh, letting your disease take its course and we'll look after you. If we're saying that's okay, but you can't make that same choice and die quickly and painfully, that's not providing patient-centred care. That's us saying what we think you're allowed to do. And so whatever the limitations or the the, uh, problems thrown up by Victoria's law, it has changed the conversation in Australia about what is medicine, what is patient-centred care, um, and what is the problem that needs to be addressed. Let's wrap up. When you think about the future and younger people who are coming up these days and trying to make it, not just in the creative arts but in any industry – 
Are you are you bullish about Australia? Uh, I think Australia is still a, a pretty blessed place to be in many ways. But I think um, I think there are significant generational issues in terms of. Uh, distribution of wealth, distribution of opportunity. You know, when I was growing up, it was conceivable that you would work and uh, be able to put a more, get a mortgage and buy a place and, and establish yourself. I'm trying to buy a house, so thanks for reminding me of, sure. uh, of that, my, um, my first house. Yeah, you know, if you it's really were an extraordinary it. talent, you yeah. probably would have one by now. But anyway, I'm not... not, not um, <laughs> Schmippery Schmope was a great idea. I can't believe it never went anywhere. Yeah, he's juggling as he says this. You can't see it, but he is. Um, so... Um, in many ways, Australia is blessed, but I think uh, I think anyone that th- there is an existential question ho- hovering over us all, and particularly the, the generations coming through, which is the health of the planet, and that uh, that overrides everything. You know, I am in that camp that absolutely believes that the intensity of the bushfires that we saw uh, eighteen months ago was not one of those things. It was not something that's been happening in Australia for 100 years. It was not exploding cow manure. Um, <laughs> did someone say that, did they? I think Barnaby Joyce is one of the people prosecuting that. Maybe Michael right. McCormack as well. Mm. Uh, could be. He's a climate scientist, right, Barnaby Joyce? Uh, well, mm. I'm not a climate scientist, neither is Barnaby Joyce. <laughs> However, if you look at what the modelling was showing us many years earlier, the intensity of the climate events that we are seeing in Australia and around the world is exactly what they modelled. And, uh, yeah, that that makes me anxious for future generations. I have a son who's 27, and uh, I, one of my passions in life is Antarctica. I've been there multiple times. And if you look at what is happening to the ice shelf there, the Larsen B ice shelf, if you look at the size of the uh, ice breaking off, um, it's uh, an iceberg the size of Jamaica broke off not so long ago. These things are not normal. These things are not just part of the historical cycle in recorded history. Although that is one of those analogies that makes no sense because I have no idea how big Jamaica is. But sure, I take your point. It's probably large. It's bigger than you and Big- it's smaller <laughs> than the planet there. So just work it out from there. <laughs> Jamaica is huge. Right. I mean, it's it's it, like when I hear people say, you know, the, a nice chunk the size of Delaware yes. has just... I'm like, how, when, who's, what's Delaware? I don't know. Is Delaware, <laughs> is Delaware big? It's Okay. Yeah, but well, yes, it... Okay, imagine all of the Sydney metropolitan area as a giant piece of ice, Mm. and we're talking, uh, you know, 100 feet high, multiplied in size by eight or nine times at least. Right. That's an enormous amount of ice. That's big. Yeah, and that's that's ice that shouldn't be floating north. Right. That's that's kind of the point. Uh, The the Antarctic ice cap, it's not just about ice breaking off and raising water levels, it actually regulates a lot of our climate, the planet's climate, ocean currents. Um, uh, what happens in terms of, and I'm not a climate scientist, so forgive me, I'm not going to give a very technical description here, but what happens in terms of uh, our weather? It's, it's a very, you know, I, sp- I was speaking to a research scientist who'd done ice core drilling in Antarctica, and he said from that we were able to get a very accurate picture of exactly what the rainfall had been in Western Australia for centuries. And what we could see from that is that the rainfall patterns have completely changed and that the rain that used to fall on the southwest of Western Australia now falls in the Southern Ocean. Um, so uh, I get very frustrated when I hear 
people <laughs> sitting in studios, a bit like this, um, saying, talking about climate change and saying it's 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 a beat up, it's alarmism. And I think, wow, you know, having had the good fortune to talk with ice core scientists and ornithologists and biologists and people who spend their entire life just studying krill and those ecosystems, this is what they do for a living. And many of them live in these places. Um, when you hear them say that everything we're seeing shows that this is uh, falling apart, we should be paying attention to that. So that's my long-winded way of saying uh, we're still a great country, but we're perhaps not living in a great time on a great planet. Up next this week, the ecologist, environmentalist and Australian of the Year, the highest prize that the Australian government can bestow upon anyone, the legend, Tim Flannery. What do you think that the layperson doesn't get about the natural world that you wish they would? Well, Josh, I'd say if if there's any music lovers listening to this, um, you know, and you're listening to an opera, you know the story of the opera, you know the history of the singers, you know the music, you know the composer, and that brings a richness, doesn't it, to the experience of listening to the opera. Well, when I look at a forest, I just don't see green, right? It's like I know this tree, I know its history, I know how it evolved, I know what pollinates it, I know why it grows in that very spot and not the little spot next door. And there's a richness that's symphonic in the natural world. If you can key in to the evolutionary history and to the diversity of that world, so to me, it's a it's a massively deep and engaging experience. It's interesting. Um, and the past is like that too. It, yeah, it's interesting you say that because one of my best mates uh, is a scuba diver, as am I, and he's a he's a scientist. He's one of Australia's leading water scientists, and. I remember asking him why he didn't become a marine biologist since he loves, absolutely adores scuba diving and the underwater environment. And he said, I wanted it to remain mysterious. I wanted it to stay at arm's length. Like I I didn't want to understand it all. I wanted it to still seem fantastical and magical because (laughs) I know so much about this other field of of science. I didn't want to sort of almost contaminate it. Um, And I don't know how I feel about that, that attitude, but what do you make of it? I can really understand it. Um, I guess, though, Josh, you know, for for me, the environments that I've been working in and the paleontology, I mean, they're so diverse and so cryptic that you could study them for a lifetime and still be none the wiser. You know, <laughs> we're still yeah. just opening the door to it. So, so yes, I can understand. But I think in my experience, I've I haven't minded studying it and diving in deep to certain little areas, you know, and getting a greater understanding, but there's still plenty of mystery out there for me. But when you look at a jungle, the fact of the fact that you understand more than the layperson does is something that you find enriching and fulfilling, not something that you find reductionist. It's totally, it is like listening to a, a symphony, you know, it's listening. The complexity of it is marvellous and, and the the pieces. You know, people think of jungles as being sort of random or haphazard and of gardens as being ordered. But the opposite is true. Jungles are unbelievably ordered. Every leaf is growing exactly where it is for very, very good reasons. A garden is this forced thing where we force a a, a kind of a, a view on nature and everything is out of place. So so if once you understand that incredible uh order of nature it opens the door to an understanding of the beauty i think and complexity of those those rainforests or other environments how is it ordered 
it's ordered by the laws of physics and, and by the, the climate, you know. So light is incredibly important. The chemistry of the plants growing around that plant is, is astonishingly important. The predators that are, are present, uh, the predators of the predators, the president, predators of the herbivores <laughs> that might eat that leaf are all determining why things grow where they do. And um, once you understand that and, and kind of look at it, you, you, you do see this, this amazing, complex and wondrous world. And what can knock that that order out of equilibrium, Tim? I mean, we're dealing at the moment with the the looming reality of climate chaos. But let's just before we get there, let's just talk about more localized effects because I'm really struck by it. I'd never thought about gardens that way and jungles that way. Um, are there presumably that order is in a constant state of disequilibrium, being buffeted around by the I don't know, the evolutionary imperatives of each species trying to propagate and trying to get a, get ahead. Um, is it in a state of, uh, of, of either decline or ascendance and never perfect equilibrium? Yes, look, it never reaches a perfect equilibrium, that's for sure. It, it is always changing and ever adapting. Um, but, you know, by and large, in... in if you take the long view of Earth history, I guess new species evolve, they may move in, new species invade and add to that complexity. Um, but that's a very, very slow process. So what we see more is like a, uh, it's, 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 it fluctuations within bounds, you know. Mm. But when you start adding the human impact, whether it's through a rapidly changing climate or through deforestation or um, overhunting bushmeat or whatever, um, you know, you start to see a, a, an impoverishment of those ecosystems. And, and it's like seeing triggering cascades of, of extinction Be, because the interrelationship of the parts is so intricate. You start seeing uh, species, uh, interdependent species vanish. So you might remove one, but that species then has a knock-on effect. The loss of that species has a knock-on effect to many others. Uh, look, I'll give you some examples of this, not from New Guinea, but from South America, where it's been studied very well, where, you know, people, there's a native pig-like animal in the South American rainforest called a peccary, and um, peccaries use wallows, so they dig holes and the holes fill with water. And it turns out that um, if you get hunt out the peccaries, there's no more wallows, and therefore the frogs that breed in those wallows also all vanish. And those frogs prey on insects, including mosquitoes, so the mosquitoes and other species the frogs would normally eat tend to um, erupt in numbers. And among those species are some that eat the leaves of certain trees. So those trees then start to become overwhelmed by the, the volume of um, herbivores eating their leaves. And then the species that depend upon those trees are impacted and so forth. Wouldn't, uh, can't, the, can't the case be made that any new predator who enters that ecosystem can have that kind of an impact? That's what I'm trying to get a handle on. Like, uh, there, there is no stasis. I mean, what is different about Homo sapiens than other predators? Is it just that we're such good tool makers that we're much better at getting rid of these, uh, these pig-like mammals? Yeah, we, we can drive them into extinction. Of course, the numbers always fluctuate. So jaguars may locally depress, you know, that species. But by and large, um, other species don't drive, um, in special circumstances they can, but by and large, species that co-evolve don't drive each other into extinction. But we are very, very capable hunters. Um, do, you know, do you know the way I think about it, Josh? It's kind of like um, if you take 
Einstein's theory of general relativity, you know, that there's no such thing as gravity, but that what causes the appearance of gravity is this a, a distortion of the space-time equilibrium, you know, mm. the space-time thing. If you think about that in ecological terms, you know, species have a a tangible impact on each other through a similar sort of distortion of the of the if you want to call it ecological space-time, mm. you know. And, and humans are just so much more massive than anything else on the planet that the distortion we create is absolutely, it's like a black hole yeah, you know, right. compared yeah. with other species. So that's, that's one way of thinking about that it. Is, that's interesting. And there, there's that old metaphor of gravity as being a ball on a trampoline. Uh, you know, if you if you put a, a bowling ball on a trampoline, you just sit it there and you have other balls around it, they're, they're, they're going to roll towards it. And I suppose you could imagine that if there was a perfectly calibrated trampoline with lots of balls kind of perched all over it in, in a perfect equilibrium and then you threw a massive bowling ball onto it, that, that would disrupt everything. Um, so let's talk about climate chaos because that's the that's the obvious single way in which we're having an impact that has so many other cascading uh, consequences for us. I, I feel like we're in a strange spot in terms of the public's, where the public's head is. Uh, I think one is either a catastrophist and deeply depressed, or one is at the other end of the pole and just feels like, you know what, capitalism and technology is going to fix this the way that it has fixed everything. And we're going to have to think our way out of it and at the end of the day lots of the naysayers have been wrong about lots of things so we can't necessarily trust the specificity of their predictions and let's just see how we all go what's wrong with those two poles no oh, wow um can i start a step back to try to Please. answer this josh yep. just to link the discussion with what we've talked about in terms of ecology so I need to ask you a question. What do you think has created the Earth's climate system that is that we've enjoyed in a relatively stable state for so much of our evolutionary history? I mean, I guess some kind of interplay of animal and plant life together because it was very yeah. different before there was life, right? That's right. So life has given stability to the Earth system in a sense. So, And, you know, scientists have come up with a name for that which we call Gaia, you know, and Gaia tends towards equilibrium. So, and it, it's, it's, it's an outcome, an emergent property of extremely complex ecosystems and a dynamic earth. So, Isn't, you know, I, it, Tim, it, I understand Gaia as being, this is Jim Lovelock's idea. Yeah, I, I, I read the book when I was in my teens, but I regarded it as being more of a, a, a spiritual ode to the idea that the combination of of life on Earth and the planet itself, and even its even its non living geology, all came together to to form some kind of a god, almost, or some kind of a conscious godlike pantheistic entity. Am I over reading into that? I think maybe Joshua. At the, at the basis of the hypothesis is the physical reality of the of the world, and you know the. And, People call it the Earth climate system, you know, if you're a scientist and you're a physicist. But, you know, Gaia is a way of referring to the emergent properties that come out of this highly complex system, I think, in, in a, which is a kind of useful, useful way of thinking about it. Um, but if we just go back to that, that system and, and you think about the stability it's created despite 
whole lot of perturbations. And it's by no means perfect. We've had asteroids knock into the planet, causing massive extinctions. We've had ice ages and so forth. But change has generally been slow. So what we've done as humans is to upset that balance, that, that emergent property of Gaia, by clearing forests, digging up fossil fuels, and overfishing the oceans, destroying the oceans. So, um, you know, it, that that's the starting point. Um, so what will happen in the next decade or two um, is kind of, I guess, we could focus on that and we could ask about the future of our civilization and so forth. But really the sort of the long-term solutions, uh, they're dependent upon a recognition of the role of the Earth climate system in creating and stabilising, um, mm. you know, life on our planet. So I, I, I know that might seem like a tangential thing. No, it's but, interesting. You know, it's it's yeah. useful. And, and it's also useful that you throw in the despoiling of the oceans and the cutting down of forests into that because those those two things don't just have implications for the climate. I mean, those are – it sounds like you're pointing to a bigger problem, to an even bigger problem than climate change. Well, yes, it, it is. It, it's the distortion of, of the ecological space-time equilibrium by this massive, massive black hole of a species mm. that's led to all of this. And, you know, we don't have to be that way, and there, there are some reasons for Do optimism. Do we not have to be that way? No, we don't. No, I don't think so. Um, there are, you know, there are many ways of living um, and, and uh, many ways of being. And I, I mean, think the, the pessimist in me or, or the devil's advocate in me thinks humans are always going to want to be more comfortable than they are and lots and lots of humans have gone from uh, from lives of poverty and drudgery and toil and disease throughout most of human history in most places to increasingly comfortable lives of pleasure and plenty over the past century or two since the Industrial Revolution and now more and more people want that life in the developing world. And so even if you were to click your fingers and and transition immediately from carbon, from, from burning fossil fuels to renewable energy. People are going to want to eat fish instead of rice if they can and beef instead of, you know, lentils. Yeah. Um, and that's going to have consequences. And that bowling ball is just going to be as heavy as we can possibly make it until the earth pushes back and says you can't make it anymore. Hmm. Well, look, that's one in interpretation, Josh, for sure. Um, I I see it a little bit differently. I mean, how would I start? Look, um, let's look at that population issue because this is, it seems, pretty central to what you're talking about there. Um, you know, human population growth is now entering a phase where we are starting to see a tapering off and indeed in many countries a reduction in terms of population. And it, I find this absolutely astonishing. Every other species that's ever existed on our planet, as Thomas Malthus knew, um, was regulated by, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, by, you know, drought, famine, disease and, and warfare or whatever it happens to be, you know, but, but or predation. Mm. We seem not to be. We, um, despite going through a period of very rapid growth, we're now entering a period of stability which looks like it'll be followed by a, a period of slow decline. And I find that it, it's kind of like, it's, it's so miraculous, Josh, it reminds me of the fact that the moon during an eclipse precisely fits over the sun. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and without that, we would never have been able to test Einstein's theory of general relativity <laughs> without any <laughs> unbelievable coincidence. <laughs> if it is, who knows? Yeah. And, but this is it, it's very interesting stuff, these unique phenomena that we see that give you pause for deep thought. You mean so, because you mean it was an eclipse that enabled us to see the star behind the sun that we yeah, that was actually hidden behind the sun, but the light That's was it. bent around the sun because of the sun's by the sun's yeah. gravitational. Imagine if the field. if the moon was a bit closer or further away, or you know, as it has been in the past. But just at this moment, we're interested in exploring the universe. This the the moon shadow fits precisely over the sun. <laughs> right, creating enough shadow that we can see the bent <laughs> yeah. light from a distant star behind. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. So so how does that how does that, how does your analogy now map map onto my uh, my previous point? So here we are as a species which is self-regulating, the only species in the history of life on earth ever that is self-regulating. And not through any conscious decision about oh there's too many people on the planet, but just through uh, a series of emergent forces that have arisen and that is a sense of individual well-being a sense of wanting some of those things you were talking about josh you know wanting a better life right so instead of having 15 kids i'm only going to have one or two you know Mm. so so there are interesting complex phenomena going on here which i find really interesting the you know and just thinking about how those people live if if you were a hunter-gatherer eating elephants or whatever you might eat, you know, large mammals in a forest, the world can only support a tiny number of people. If you're an agriculturalist, you've moved down in the trophic cascade to the point where you're eating plants, and those plants, you know, there's 100 times as much energy as there would be in the, you know, the large mammals. So you can have a larger population. We're now moving into a phase, though, where we are looking at development, uh, the development of artificial meats, we're looking at the development of uh, products using bacteria, archaea, and hydrogen that will replace bread. You know, this is where we're at. We're moving further down the trophic, further mm. down the food pyramid to its very base, you see. And can you imagine a world, Josh, where we are sourcing our uh, wheat requirements from giant vats of archaea fed by wind turbines and solar panels? Sorry, what's putting archaea, hydrogen Tim? In? Oh, archaea are, uh, they're, they're little bacteria-like entities. They're the most primitive forms of life we know about. But yeah. they are, they have you know, unbelievably complex uh, chemical pathways within them. They're, they're sort of like the Swiss army knife of life. They can do everything, whereas we can only do one thing. We can only use oxygen, but they can do and, everything. And can we farm them? Yes. There's people at the moment in, in, um, in Finland, a group called uh, Solar Foods, who are looking at how we use Archaea to create all of the basic starches and proteins that are present in wheat. I mean, um, I'm, uh, I, I love to hear you say that because I'm very bullish. I'm a very conflicted uh, eater of organic meat, but conflicted about, uh, about eating meat at all, both for environmental reasons, but actually mainly just for, for moral reasons. But um, I, I'm very bullish on lab-grown meat and you know the possibility of of creating animal protein flesh without sentience without without animal sentience and i I like the idea of you know eating insects and things like that instead of Mm. farming animals and i loathe industrialized farming but all of that seems to me to run a little bit counter to the sort of goddess temple gaia i am the world sort of uh, talk that 
you seem to be pointing to a little earlier. That to me seems to be part of the kind of bullish Silicon Valley tech nerd, we can think our way out of all of our problems strain of humankind. And I'm not sure which one to put my faith in. Yeah. Well, look, I, I don't know whether we can think our way out of our problems. Um, but what other way out is there? Well, I suppose some would say, I suppose some would say, you know, return to a much simpler way of life, try to try to have a revolution in our consciousness so that we're not constantly fucking around with nature. Instead, we're obeying, uh, you know, the, the, the dictates of, of nature and live j- just much more humbly and in tune with the cosmos than we currently do. And that might not be the type, that type of person might not be the type of person who's tinkering around with Finnish, uh, you know, microbes to produce no. vast oceans of wheat. Well, exactly. And look, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that view. And I think that ultimately, it's probably quite a fulfilling lifestyle to live that way. Mm. But the difficulty we face at the moment is that the people of China and India are so far from thinking about that, um, and sub-Saharan Africa, that, that, you know, we can try, and I think it's good, the more people live like that, the better, but we're doubtless going to need to think our way out of the problem as well. Yeah, no, there's already too much CO two in yeah exactly yeah we're out of yeah uh, and, so and it'll be both but you know the interesting thing is Josh with all of this you know once you reach a certain level of affluence and we talked about the impact of that on population growth you know the desire to have lots of children or not you know the question arises what is life really all about and that fundamental question I think what are we about why are we here that question will start driving human evolution and development at a later stage i think in our in our journey mm. but at the moment not at the moment you know my, my grandparents you know they lived through the great depression my parents were born during a the depression they you know the, the second world war was fought in their lifetimes you know they they were a shell shock generation um we're, we're just emerging from that now so and that this kind of obsession with develop with accumulating material wealth is sort of symptomatic of that generation in a way that's just emerged out of dire poverty and trauma. So I think we can't expect to go straight from that into this more deeply questioning uh, kind of human that I think will be more common in the future. Mm-hmm.